Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Jeffrey Rosenberg joining us with BlackRock, their portfolio manager of Systematic multi-strategy. Jeff, how is the BlackRock call nuanced in the last two weeks, the cacophony of noise and what we see within this jobs report? How is the yield call morphed for BlackRock? Well, it's really, as Jonathan was just talking about, you know, the change is that the focus is is less on what the Fed is going to do and on monetary policy and much more on the fiscal policy. And when you look at this report, you know, there's a little bit of, of good news, there's a little bit of bad news, uh, but I don't think it really changes the overall narrative from fiscal policy, and importantly, market expectations for fiscal policy. It, it appears that we're gonna go to the bigger plan, uh, and with that, you've had this return to a, a pretty significant bear steepening in, in the curve. Uh, and that's a reflection of the impact, the expected impact of these very significant fiscal policies. I'll use the plural here because the focus is on the first one, uh, the 1.8, 1.9 trillion, the fiscal plan to address COVID, but it will be followed by a second one, which is further economic uh, uh, fiscal uh, interventions. And so that's really the, the the focus here. And that's what's changing the outlook. It's uh, steeping of the curve, increasing inflation expectations, modestly higher interest rates. Let's talk about that a little bit more. Front end of the yield curve pinned to the floor, 10, 11 basis points on a two-year yield. That's going nowhere for a long time unless the Fed changes course. Jeff, as you say, all the flexibility is the long end. Through the belly out to 10s, out to 30s, that's where you get this flexibility, this ability to shift higher in yields. How self-limiting do you think a sell-off could be? Well, you know, it's about the pace of the of the increase in terms of it being self-limiting, right? What what limits it is is there a degree of increase in long-term interest rates that starts to have a meaningful impact to expectations in the real economy? Where does that mostly show up? It's through the transmission to the housing market, right? The big story in the real economy, the big beneficiary of this interest rate structure has been housing. And so if you had a, a significant disruption there in terms of the steepening of the curve, it, that's when it becomes self-limiting because then the market starts to worry that it's gone too far, that the Fed would then ramp up it, its intervention. That's the first area. The second area, real quickly, is financial conditions, right? A, a too aggressive move in terms of the back end of the curve, steepening, taper tantrum kind of concerns that starts to disrupt financial intermediation and the stock market, most importantly, probably triggers some kind of first verbal intervention and maybe you know a larger intervention if the disruption is larger. So that's the way in which it's self-limiting. This kind of gradual bear steepening that doesn't disrupt those two elements you know, can be absorbed. The bear steepening that we're talking about, the longer term yield going up, is it because that the supply of treasuries that the U.S. is going to be selling is going to be going up so significantly to pay for all of this fiscal stimulus? Or is it because inflation is expected to tick up with all the money circulating in the economy? Well, it's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, the supply demand uh, imbalance is or, or balance, I should call it, is uh, it, it gets met. The question is at what price? And that's really a reflection of the total of the demand. The key is is that the Fed is is uh, the major purchaser there. And so the expectations are that they'll maintain that. You know, 
this year, through this year, a lot of question and debate about the pace of tapering and eventually halting those purchases. But what we've seen from Fed officials recently is, you know, no hurry to talk about and really tamping down any discussion about that. So that Fed support really helps to offset the increase in expected supply. And then the long term inflation expectations are ticking up. We've seen that certainly in terms of break even inflation. Uh, and that's a modest increase in a return to some term premium in the back end of the curve. But it's a very modest increase relative to historical levels. Jeff Rosenberg, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With BlackRock this morning. On policy, we went out in our Rolodex and said, who is someone who did not sleep last night? That would be Henrietta Treas of Veda Partners, uh, looking at the festivities of the Senate and the path towards a new kind of stimulus. Henrietta, first principles, explain to our audience the distance that the Democrats are from filibuster. Um, Technically speaking, they are very far from the filibuster, but practically they are right up on it Um, and getting closer every day as we go through um, what I expect will be a very generous interpretation of something called the bird rule, which prohibits any policy agenda items from passing with just 51 votes. So we're very close. At about 5 o'clock this morning, the Democrats unlocked reconciliation authority, which will allow them to get their stimulus out sometime in the next just four weeks here, um, maybe five, to Mm -hmm. provide as much as $1.9 trillion in stimulus to the U.S. economy um, with only Democratic votes. Henrietta, does the senator from West Virginia apply the bird rule or the marginal bird rule? And can Republicans, the minority, adjust the bird rule to steer reconciliation in their direction? Well, the most important person technically here is going to be the parliamentarian, uh, a woman named Elizabeth McDonough, and she is going to be the one who um, tells the Democrats how much they can get away with. In practical purposes, though, Senator Manchin is absolutely someone who is going to be able to say, you know, maybe you can you know, twist the arm of the parliamentarian, but I'm still not going to vote for it. That would apply to things like um, getting the direct payment individuals out to people who he thinks are in an upper income threshold or moving the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Last night, there was a vote that uh, got rejected or supported rather uh, from the Republican side saying, you know, we're not going to increase the minimum wage and potentially hurt small businesses during a pandemic. And there was Democratic support for that, which points the picture of even if Uh, Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders and his chief of staff, Bill Downster, who is extraordinarily experienced in the reconciliation process. If Manchin's not going to vote for it or Senator Sinema or Warner or Tester or Kelly, there is nothing the bird rule or tweaking the bird rule can do to overcome what they will not do. Um, So the the restrictions there on policy are still very much in in place by the moderates in the Democratic conference. So basically, uh, Biden's hope for a bipartisan Washington seemed to be fading as time goes on, rapidly fading. And there is a question of whether people's hopes for a second round of stimulus after this one that perhaps they've gotten a little ahead of themselves, given the lack of, uh, of willingness to really work together to push something through. Henrietta, do you think that it's less likely that we're going to get some sort of infrastructure spending if the Democrats push this through unilaterally? 
I think it's really difficult. Um, one of the things the street is factoring in is that Democrats are going to plow through the stimulus bill, move to an infrastructure package, and offset it with tax increases on corporations and individuals. There's just no planet where you have the votes for that. Um, so I think the difficulty of getting another budget through, holding another all-nighter on Votorama, and this time doing it on infrastructure spending, is going to be even more complicated than this package. So if we have 100% odds that this bill will eventually go through, whether Republicans vote in favor of another stimulus bill or not, it's going to pass. The infrastructure package is going to be even harder. Um, And then some Democrats you talk to would say, and then we want to do a third bill after that for fiscal year 2023, and it's really hard to thread the needle for for that component, especially as we get into, you know, the 2022 midterm elections, which are just going to start around March of next year. So I, I think that each subsequent path forward on a partisan basis does get more difficult. Uh, But what we've seen from this president is that they're extraordinarily um, uh, rigorous in their messaging. And so there's no question that we're in, you know, COVID relief week. And I would be eager to see what infrastructure week looks like under this president. Just on a technical note, Henrietta, you were talking about taxation. And can you talk about the reconciliation process and whether Congress has to pay for some of the uh, measures that they pass if they go through reconciliation rather than a bipartisan uh, measure? Great question. A major source of confusion on the street. What happened last night is the Democrats authorized $1.9 trillion in deficit increases. That is over a 10-year budget window, and that means that over 10 years, Democrats or Republicans, if they want to vote for the bill, can authorize $1.9 trillion in deficit increases, and they do not have to pay for it. Do not. There are no taxes in this bill. Indeed, there was a vote um, offered by a couple of Republicans that said we will not raise taxes on small businesses during a pandemic. And it passed 100 to zero. So there are Mm -hmm. no taxes. This bill will not be offset by tax increases either at the corporate or individual level. The deficit spending will be incurred during that 10-year budget window, and no taxes will be increased as a result of this bill. Some of the detail there, Henrietta Trey is a pro at Veda Partners there on fiscal and many conversations uh, to come forward as well. Christopher Lowe over at FHM Financial uh, makes the really important point that most of the drop in the good news unemployment rate, 6.7 to 6.3, was 400,000 fewer people who stopped looking for work. Tiffany Wilding joins at PIMCO with acute analysis. Uh, Tiffany, there's so many moving parts here. Is this an employment report of almost desolation where people are just giving up looking? Um, well, yeah, so it, it certainly could be that, but but I also think there could be just some, some pandemic-related distortions here where you actually okay. had people that the reason why they dropped out of the labor force and they're not looking, and the reason is is maybe because they think they're going to get their jobs back soon. So this is sort of a temporary phenomenon. You know, and I, and I think overall what, what the labor force report sort of showed us, though, was that pandemic-related weakness in the economy at the end of the year um, was was yeah. actually you know quite a bit more acute than than we had initially thought. So, but I think that there maybe is some you know some good news here in, in the sense that um, you know p- the reason why people might not be looking and dropped out of the labor force is because they think they're going to get their jobs back. Um, you know, and, and if that's the case, you know that that would be a yeah. good thing. I love what Chris Lowe says in his report. I want you to comment on this word. It's such a delicate and unused <laughs> word. He says the forty nine thousand was scant. 
and it was just a whisper of an improvement. Did you extend your timeline, Tiffany, today to so-called employment recovery because of what you observed? Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the 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 report was a little bit weaker than we thought, but but you also have to keep in mind again, there you know, there's some quirks in the data. Um, I think seasonal factors um, were unable to fully adjust for some of the issues. So things like uh, warehousing and and retail temporary jobs there related to the the holidays, they've become more pronounced. Um, you know, so you kind of get these seasonal separations that you know the, the seasonal factors don't fully uh, account for. Um, you know, so I think that's actually probably good. It, you know, I think the bottom line is all that is to say that you know, forty or fifty thousand is not great. Um, you know, but this doesn't really change our outlook that much. You know, I think the other thing really that's important to keep in mind here is that um, spending did pick up in, um, in in January as a result of the um, you know the the payments the, the Treasury payments to households that came with the uh, COVID COVID relief bill you know so and, and then we expect more legislation you know from the Biden administration uh, by March for more stimulus so I think you know overall this doesn't really change the outlook um, you know we know that things were a bit more acute the weakness was a bit more acute at, at year end but but I think that the outlook is still uh, you know towards a, mm. a pretty decent size acceleration. Tiffany, what's the concern or what's the level of concern about some of, this, uh, some of these folks that have been unemployed for a very long time that perhaps this is more, maybe more permanent maybe, than maybe we initially thought? Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the concern, right? Is that you basically the longer that people are unemployed, um, you have uh, you know sort of longer term effects happening. So you have skills that atrophy. Um, you know, you know, have training that people that people get on the job that stops happening because they're unemployed. Um, and effectively what happens is is that, you know, the longer they're unemployed, it's almost like the, the less likely they are to, to get employed because they don't have those skills. You know, now, you know, the, the this is the one thing or one of the um, the conclusions that came out of the, uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, Fed's listens and monetary policy review that happened over the last couple of years is that if you can get back to a hot labor market, then those people that were, you know, unemployed for long periods of time, they actually benefit. So, you know, the hot labor market with few uh, labor supply that's low really draws those types of people back in. They start getting the training again, and that's better for the broader economy. So, you know, I think we really want to focus here on on bringing the labor market back to potential, creating kind of a hot situation as soon as possible. You know, so you, uh, you know, to the extent that you do have those longer term unemployed, you can really draw them back into the labor market. So, Tiffany, it, it appears that uh, we're getting some movement on fiscal stimulus here. We take a look at the jobs data today, the, uh, the employment data today. What do you think this economy really needs from Washington here in terms of fiscal stimulus, including this package, uh, however it may come out, and then maybe even something more permanent down the road? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the focus should be here first and foremost on on pandemic relief. I mean, you have to keep in mind that that we still have labor market slack. You know, now we can argue about the size that's needed for that pandemic relief. Um, you know, and exactly how to do that. But I think overall, first and foremost, that should still be the focus. Um, but then after that, we need to focus on some of these longer term initiatives and investments in the economy. Um, you know, that that create supply, create uh, longer term growth. You know 
productivity growth, infrastructure, um, and things like that. And, and keep in mind, if the focus on these longer-term investments yeah. um, is more towards the supply side of the economy, that's actually not inflationary. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, Tiffany Wilding with us with PIMCO. Tiffany, Heidi Sherholz, of course, writing it up on the labor economy, the Economic Policy Institute. Folks, this is a liberal think tank uh, that conservatives read because it's smart, 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 even if you disagree with the articles. She has a working number, Heidi, of 26, excuse me, uh, Tiffany, of 26 to 27 million workers, 15% of the workforce, workforce is in some way affected by all this. What's the PIMCO working number of the number of people struggling in this labor economy? Yeah, I mean, clearly it's 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 high. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I think that's the that's the issue here is that there's a lot of people um, that that were affected, and even if you if even if you didn't lose your job, um, you know, there, I think that there um, there are effects in terms of uh, you know education and things like that being disrupted. So uh, you still have to to deal, you know, you have to have more flexible working environment and things like that. So I think there are certainly a lot of people um, that are impacted by this, you know, and, and I think that's the point yeah. here is that um, for the fiscal policy measures, uh, you know, you still have to focus on pandemic relief as a result of that. We're not out of the, out of the woods yet uh, in terms of the pandemic, although the outlook uh, is much better now than it was, you know, uh, six months ago. Tiffany Wilder needed that update. Thank you so much. With the Pacific Investment Man, I love saying that, the Pacific yeah. <laughs> Investment Management Company. I'm very pleased to say that giving us some of her time is Heather Boucher of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors. Heather, great to catch up with you. Thank you for your time this morning. Just help me understand, just to begin with, how the incoming data is informing the decision that you're making around fiscal stimulus and the package you're set to deliver down in D.C. Well, the numbers that we got this morning really do underscore the cost of inaction. The January numbers are quite disappointing. They show that the pace of job growth has, um, is slow. And it's certainly over the past three months, it's a lot slower than it was earlier um, at the end of uh, 2020. And it just it underscores that without further aid, our economy is going to continue to struggle. We need to get that aid out to the families and businesses that need it. We need to make sure that we spend the resources we need to contain the virus so that we can all get back to work. And this report really does make that quite clear. Heather, you use that word aid, but given the size of the package, some people would just call it stimulus. It's huge. Why is that word aid different to the word stimulus? And why do you think it's aid and not stimulus? Well, at this point in this crisis, our first goal is to contain the pandemic. So a lot of the funds that are in the American Rescue Plan are about making sure that schools can reopen, making sure that we get the vaccine out, making sure that all the things we need to do to keep Americans safe and healthy are our first priority. And while we do that, we need to make sure that businesses have the resources they need and importantly, families have the resources they need so they can weather this crisis. So it still is, a, it, we're, we're still really thinking about this as relief um, until we can contain the virus. Larry Summers is in the Washington Post today asking some important questions about the size of this package relative to the output gap. Heather, could you weigh in on that, if at all, what the right size of the package should be relative to the output gap that we need to fill? 
Certainly. You know, this package was built from the ground up. We looked at the needs all across our economy and calculated how much it was that we were going to need to spend to, again, to contain the virus, to make sure that schools could reopen, to make sure that childcare centers can reopen, to make sure that uh, workers have paid leave, all of those sorts of things. And then to make sure that workers have those unemployment benefits as long as they need them, those direct checks for all the families that need them. So, so we built that in that way. And, um, you know, the goal here is to make sure that, you know, families and businesses can weather this crisis. And we'll worry, uh, you know, it may be that um, that uh, it, it, this this report from this from January really does show that the high unemployment, especially for communities of color, the job losses for women um, and the and the lower labor force participation really do show that we need to continue to act and we need to do so quickly. Heather, what happens if everything goes right? That's the question that Larry Summers, I think, is asking. What's the contingency plan if everything starts to go right and maybe too right? Well, you know, 2020 was a really rough year, and we know that we uh, have a hard time predicting the shape of this pandemic. And we know that um, without aid, families and businesses suffer. And today's jobs report really is the proof of the, you know, the proof is in the pudding here, that without continued support, we're going to see an economy that is performing um, much, uh, much more worse than it needs to be. So I am, quite frankly, far more worried about the costs of an action than I am okay. at, at doing too much at this point. I think that echoes what many people are talking about down in D.C. at the moment on both the monetary policy side and the fiscal side in this administration. Heather, let's get to one of the policies, the checks. If I earn $75,000 and I can get a big check from the U.S. government, why is that aid and not stimulus? Well, that is a, that is a great question. So here's the thing. You know, we saw the checks were an incredibly effective tool when they went out last spring. Families used them. They helped them, you know, when they experienced unemployment or added expenses because of the crisis. And we know that millions of families are struggling right now. And that is the purpose of topping up the checks from December to get that $2,000 out there to, um, uh, to, to all the families that need them. Talk to me about eligibility and the conversation within the administration at the moment. Heather, is this some concern? that maybe the pool of people that could receive these checks is just a little bit too wide? Well, you know, the president has been very clear that getting those, um, those checks that total $2,000 out to families is his priority. And he's been open to uh, negotiation uh, on the margins. But, you know, I think what's really important is that, you know, all those kindergarten teachers, those firefighters, those folks who were pulling in, you know, $60,000 or so, that they get this aid. We have seen how important it is that those checks get out there and provide those cushions for families. They still have jobs though, Heather. And I'm not here to advocate either side of this debate. I'm just trying to understand this just a little bit more because the word I keep hearing down in DC is bipartisan, but this seems to be very ideological. The idea of trying to address some of the social injustices of the last several decades, maybe even longer, and not to relieve people from the effects of the pandemic. There's pandemic relief and then there's relief because of injustice or perceived injustice of the last decades, several decades in this country. Heather, which one is it? 
You know, I think that this is uh, this is about relief, but it is also about the fact that we are in a K-shaped recovery. You know, it re- continues to be the case that folks at the top end of the income distribution have done very well. Those folks that, that have been able to telecommute safely, you know, at the very, very top. And as you started this segment, uh, folks, um, you know, who are in the stock market have yeah. seen uh, record highs. But the reality is for millions of families who are not in those top echelons, this has been an incredibly stressful and economically damaging time. So we need to make sure to get relief out there. You know, we need to make sure that those essential workers uh, get that relief. We need to make sure that families who are struggling have the support they need. Do you think it should be based on regions and the cost of living in those regions? Do you think one check for everyone, regardless of where they live, makes sense? Well, you know, we're a big country and certainly economic conditions are different across the country, but we are one country. And this is a federal policy to make sure that we're providing that support that we need to people all across these United States. So that seems like the right policy for this moment. Heather, come back soon. Love to continue the conversation. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Heather Boucher there of the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors on this jobs report and a stimulus effort down in D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.